There are certain skills, critical skills, that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett. Thank you, Anne, and welcome to It's All About Skills. This is a series of programs where we discuss the critical skills and their application in the real world. My name is Charlie Jett, and we're coming to you from our studio in beautiful downtown Chicago. I'm an internationally certified coach, and I specialize in career management, skill development, positive intelligence, and career crises. Well, we have a wonderful and very interesting guest today. Marty Strong is a decorated retired Navy SEAL officer and the author of the new business leadership book, Be Nimble, How the Navy SEAL Creative Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business. After leaving the military service, Marty spent seven years as a successful investment advisor with UBS before transitioning into executive management for a billion dollar a year defense contracting company. He is now the chief executive officer and chief strategy officer for the LGS Management Group, Inc., an employee-owned enterprise consisting of one training company and three healthcare companies. So welcome, Marty, to It's All About Skills. Hey, Charlie, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And Marty, to start, let's go back a few years. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you were motivated to become a Navy SEAL. I grew up in Nebraska for the most part. I was born in uh, the Panhandle of Nebraska, Sydney, Nebraska, a little tiny town out there, right near the juncture of Nebraska, uh, Wyoming, and Colorado. And the, uh, I guess when I was about three years old, I moved to Omaha, Nebraska. My, my dad got a job there with the Army Corps of Engineers. And I stayed there till I was about 11. And then my dad was uh, picked up for orders in U.S. Army headquarters, Japan. So I Moved to Japan for four years with my siblings and uh, spent four glorious years there on, a, on an army base. And uh, when that was done, I came back to Nebraska for a, a short period of time. And then I went to live with my dad in Honolulu, Hawaii. So I went to high school in Hawaii. And then I finished out high school in Gross Point, Michigan, which is uh, a suburb of Detroit before entering the Navy. Now, what got you into the SEAL program? I mean, did you enter the SEAL program immediately or? No. Uh, some friends of mine wanted to become Marines, and we were in Omaha at the time, just, just before I went to uh, Hawaii. And they talked me into going to the local mall and signing up for the Marine Corps. As we sat there and watched the, uh, the film about Marines going up this hill carrying a lot of weight and backpacks. I was about 125 pounds at the time. My friends were like all city linebackers and, you know, they were, they were digging the, digging <laughs> the Marine Corps. And I slid out to go to the bathroom and somewhere near the bathroom, there was a uh, Navy recruiter. So he asked me about what I was looking for. And I told him, and 
when I came back out, he was waiting for me, gave him his card, gave me his card. And he asked me if I had any interest in the Navy. I told him why I was there. And so he kept asking me questions. And eventually I said, okay, my dad was a radar operator on a ship in the Korean War. Uh, I've got other relatives that were in the Navy. And he said, well, give me your phone number and I'll give you a call if you decide not to join the Marine Corps. So one thing led to another. And I ended up joining the Navy and coming in under a guaranteed program to become a uh, radar and uh, air traffic control expert. Mm -hmm. But they call in the Navy uh, an operations specialist. Yes. And went to boot camp and went straight to um, that school for 17 weeks. So my, my story is a little bit different. I, uh, back in, in, in the time that I joined the SEALs, nobody knew what SEALs were. There were no books, no movies, no TV shows. <clears throat> nobody in your neighborhood would have known what a, what a SEAL was. They might have known what a frogman is, maybe. And I ended up in, uh, at the end of my 17 weeks of air traffic control school, getting orders, and they read the orders out loud to me. And the orders were report no later than 0730 tomorrow morning to underwater demolition SEAL training, Coronado, California. I didn't know what any of that meant. I'm 17 and a half. I'm staring at the guy. He hands me my tickets to my flight at O'Hara Airport. <laughs> and I said, excuse me, these are wrong. And he said, you know, he goes, get out of here. So I get to the airport. I call my dad. It took a lot of quarters to keep that conversation going. And he said, look, son, you know, I read, I read the orders to him over the phone. He said, that's why they call him orders to show up, show up out there in California, find a chief petty officer, tell him your story and they'll set it all straight. So I did all that and I actually was kind of diverted off to a master chief seal. And he talked me into staying. He talked me into trying the course. I was a competitive swimmer in high school. I played football and basketball and uh, I surfed. So I wasn't afraid of the ocean. He talked me into staying. He said, look, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? It's a volunteer program. If you quit or get drummed out, the Navy's going to take you right back as a radar air traffic controller because those are hard to, hard to grow, you know? Uh -oh. I said, okay. So I started the class with 126. And uh, six months later, there were 13 of us original uh, classmates uh, graduating. Wow, that's a big attrition rate, isn't it? Yeah, it's about standard. It's about 75%. Even today, it's still 75%. Oh. And it took me... I actually didn't know what happened for years, but I came back to be a, um, an instructor when I was a chief petty officer at the, uh, at, the, at the course in Cornell, California. And I went in and looked at my records and I saw the original documents and the original documents, I, I had taken a swim test in boot camp, which I thought was for a swim competition during boot camp, but they took my name and my social security number down and everything. And that's how I ended up getting sucked into the seal pipeline <laughs> I and mean, it took me eight years to figure it out i just thought it was some you know crazy admin mess like my orders got mixed up with somebody else going to go into the seal training but now i actually swam in a pool and somebody took my name and social security number down so well, you were you were qualified and didn't know it at the time yeah <laughs> hey uh marty you know that you talk about the seal training program it's you know to put it mildly it's very very rigorous so tell us about a little bit about that training program, uh, what you can at least, and about the essential skills that you learned from that training. So the first thing that most people probably wouldn't understand, even, even today with all the information that's out there, uh, 
there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are trying to get into the SEAL program every year. This, the screening process starts with a very wide um, pipeline at the beginning. There's lots of reasons why people don't make it to an actual class. Some of it has to do with um, medical issues. Some of it has to do with their ability to uh, pass certain kinds of aptitude tests. And eventually you have to pass a physical performance test, which you know, a good high school athlete could probably do it. It's not really daunting, but it's just you know, one more hoop that they have to jump through. So when you start with say a class of 125, that's actually the culmination of months and months of the Navy screening out a lot of other people that wanted to be there. So you're already kind of the, the creme de la creme on day one. Uh, you don't know all that. You know, you just think you, you think you've arrived and you're happy to be there until the instructors show up. And then they pretty much tell you you're worthless and there's no reason for you to be there and you're not going to be there very much longer. So that's kind of the, the gist of getting to the course. Everybody thinks that they've arrived and since they passed all those things, they should have, you know, 100% probability of, of succeeding. <laughs> but the way the course is set up, and, it, and it, it's been modified over the years, you know, the early 60s, the late 60s, um, every time we've gone to war, um, especially in the Vietnam era and then after the Vietnam era when they didn't need as many SEALs, and then again after 9-11 when they needed more SEALs, they kind of throttled back and forth on the course and they changed a few things here and there, but essentially this is, this is what stayed the same. You have anywhere from three to four weeks of intense training leading up to a week that's called hell week. Tell us about that. That sounds well, fascinating. So the, the preemptive weeks are basically to wear you down, to yeah. whittle you down, to tire you out. It's lots of running and swimming you run a mile or two and back from every meal across the base. So you're running six miles in formation with boots and, and your uniform on every day. That's on top of, you know, essentially six to six and a half hours of nonstop physical training. So by the time you get to the day one of hell week, you've already lost a lot of the people in the class. My class, we lost half of them. We, I think we started hell week with around 62 people. The, the hell week crucible selection event like a lot of other commando courses is designed so that we can weed out those people, mostly a mindset uh, process that just wouldn't be very good in the job. And the job is very stressful and it's dynamic and you have to have a lot of flexibility, a very nimble mind. You have to be um, ready to think on your feet, change the plan at a moment's notice and commit. You have to be able to follow, you have to be able to lead. These are all things that a SEAL has to have is just natural attributes, you know, aside from all this technical training and everything. So that's what Hell Week's all about. It's to put you in a situation with repeated physical activities, lots of psychological scenarios where they tell you, okay, we're gonna go out here and we're gonna run two miles and they take you on a 10 mile run. That's not fair, right? So if you're at a certain mindset, you're saying, wait a minute, they lied to me, that's not fair. I can't do 10 miles in the soft sand or they have you run in knee high, you know, ocean surf. And you think the whole 10 miles is going to be in knee-high ocean surf. It's amazing. People start having this conversation in their head. And whoever wins that narrative between your ears, that kind of determines. It's, is it the positive, assertive vo voice that believes that all things can be accomplished? Or is it that other voice saying, this was a big mistake. This isn't for you. And, uh, you know, I should probably go do something else with my, with my Navy career. 
And you, as an instructor later on, I can actually, you can see the wheels turning. You, know, you can see different people. <laughs> you can read it in their eyes. You can read it in their body language, the way they move, react. Well, Hell Week, it just, if that's all going on before Hell Week, but Hell Week accentuates this. It, it, it hypes up the stress. There's very, very little sleep, almost no sleep for the entire five days. They're, they're always fed, lots of medical checks and things like that, but they're in a constant state of being cold, miserable, sand in every part of their body. You know, their, their skin is rubbed raw from that. They're in um, placing competitions with other teams against other teams. And if you win, you get maybe a cat nap of five minutes. If you lose, you end up running five miles or doing the obstacle course, carrying a rubber boat, um, which is basically something that can't be accomplished, but you're supposed to try. And the whole point of the exercise from the instructor's point of view and from the way the course is constructed is to create a stressful environment that's safe and contained, but stressful on a regular kind of continuum of stress. And at some point during that continuum, each individual makes a decision in their head, is this for me? And eventually by the end of Hell Week, you've probably lost half of the class that you started Hell Week with. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the traditional traditional numbers. Wow, wow. Now, what did surviving that experience teach you about yourself? And maybe what, what you think it taught uh, about others, because you had an experience as well, looking at it from a participant and as a SEAL leader. Right. So I had probably, you know, my personal experience in Hell Week, and, and then I probably oversaw about 10 to 12 other Hell Weeks as a supervisors, senior enlisted, and then later on as an officer. The, um, when, you, when you're 17 years old and you're going through it, in the moment, you don't, you're not racking up any great lessons learned. You're not, you're not even trained to think that way you know, out of high school. You're just trying to put one foot in front of the other. But when you have a chance just to pause and you realize that you know, so many weeks went by and so many people were gone that you knew and they just kind of disappeared, you're not sure what happened to them or why they quit, you start to feel that you're different. Mm -hmm. You start to feel there must be something that you're doing. There must be something that you're thinking that's preventing you from just making that decision to quit. And one of the things I learned was, and there's, this is cliche probably nowadays, but, and I tell this to anybody who wants to go through a course like this, if the day you start, go find the people that are having a good time and laughing, get around the positive mindset people, get around the people that are getting, you know, hosed with freezing water or you know they have sandbags um, both shoulders and they're doing squats whatever it is and they're having a good time they've got the right the right conversations going on in their head because the opposite is true if you end up hanging out with the people that are mumbling to themselves <laughs> <laughs> you will start to become just like them and so that's a survival mechanism but at some point i realized that hey i'm one of the guys having a good time or having a sense of humor about this I'm one of those guys, it's good to be around. I have some kind of natural resilience or aptitude for this or you know, stress management, whatever it is, because I'm still here. I couldn't put my finger on it. You, you fast forward to you know, eight years later when I'm an instructor and I'm watching all these hundreds of people start each of these events, watching them over nine weeks get whittled down. You make a lot of other observations. And one of the observations is when you stop thinking about me and start thinking about we, your survivability rate goes up about 80%. Wow. We rarely, if ever had officers quit. I realized 
watching as an instructor, the reason for that is they had responsibilities outside of their own head. Everybody else is concerned about, I'm cold, I'm tired, I'm hungry. The officers are going, how many guys do I have? Are they all still here? Are they all together? So when you have a responsibility for others, or and you don't have to be an officer, sometimes I'd seen enlisted guys would assume responsibility, like a den mother, get everybody around, talk people into you know not quitting, get that get that voice to change in their head. It would have a, a physical effect, a visual change in the population that those people were affecting, and their own behavior, because they're either a real leader assigned as a naval leader or they're an ad hoc leader, and that leadership role, caring about other people. Um, got them through it. They, they weren't thinking about their own misery, right? Yeah. So that's that's probably the biggest takeaway. After the fact, looking back, you know, try to hang out with people that are very positive. If you can handle being around people that are negative, and as a leader, you can communicate and inspire and influence them to kind of come over from the dark side and, and be more optimistic, great. But whatever you do, you know, try to lead by example and make it a positive example or hang around people like that and, and then emulate them. Those are two high. I mean, I think they're transferable everywhere uh, in yeah. any, in any situation. So that was probably the highest point of uh, kind of understanding the, the kind of the nirvana of, of knowledge from that whole process. It's not about how many pushups you can do. It's not about being tough. It's getting a control of that voice in your head, being positive yourself and then focusing on other people and seeing what you can do to help other people. And that's why they call it the teams. Yeah, That's essentially what you are going into is an environment where the entire brotherhood in a SEAL team is thinking about we instead of me. You know, that sounds like it's something that can't be directly taught. You have to learn that. You have to experience. You have to feel it. It's true. And and nobody's perfect. So everybody has a moment. Even, even when you're in a SEAL team, I, uh, I ended up painting a whole lot of cargo containers all by myself because I walked away from a project where everybody was working as a group and I went off to get a Coke. This is probably my second year at SEAL Team 2. I went off to get a Coke in the, uh, in the building. Uh, somebody else talked me into playing a couple of games of pool because there was a pool table in the lounge. Time went by. It was 30 minutes or so. My chief came in, watched me play for a little while, asked me if I was winning, kept watching me play. And then, you know, I didn't think it was any, any big deal. Then he told me to come on outside and I went back out and nobody was there. He let everybody go to go drinking in the middle of the day. I had to finish the entire project. It was a 16 person project for a day. It took me about three days by myself. Wow. That's a learning experience. <laughs> yeah. Wire brushing, steel boxes, double priming, double painting. And then the chief had to come out and inspect it. So I got punished for, for thinking about me and, and not thinking about the team. Oh my golly. And, now, and there was no, there was no yelling involved or anything. It was just a very quiet. Come on out. You're finishing it, son. See you later. <laughs> wow. Well, Marty, now we're, we're not going to go into the details or anything of the kind of operations you went on and that sort of stuff. That's for another time and for your book, I suppose. But then, you know, eventually after being in this uh, environment and being a, a Navy SEAL and becoming a chief and that sort of stuff, participating in the training, you eventually transferred into becoming an officer. And essentially you were a Mustang. You came up from the ranks and then you became an officer. Tell us about how that happened. Well, I, I was a very young chief. I think I was the youngest chief selected in the Navy the year I, the, the year I was um, advanced. 
I was 25 when I got notification. And part of that was I did an early entry at age 16 and I was in boot camp about five days after I turned 17. And I graduated top of that, of that radar air traffic control course and I got automatically advanced to third class petty officer. So I walked in to BUDS already, like I had two years of advancement under my belt. So I was able to make chief real early and I thought I could have more influence and maybe I, I liked leading. And I thought maybe I could do a good job as an officer. Obviously, as at the point I went to officer candidate school, I'd been an enlisted SEAL for about 10 years. I'd seen a lot of fantastic examples to emulate, and I'd seen a lot of <laughs> examples to not emulate. I thought I had a pretty good handle on what was expected of an officer. And so that's I went to um, I went to school at, at night and I got my degree and I got accepted into the officer's candidate program, did my time at uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, where I got picked as the regimental commander in charge of all 600 uh, cadets, whatever, which was also, that was an interesting scenario. But so I went right from wanting to be an officer to suddenly I was in charge of 600 people at officer's candidate school, um, which actually was kind of like BUDS. It was a lot, it was a lot easier to talk to them having been through buds as an instructor i had i had the lingo down i had the look down i could you know i could i could do a lot of things um based on that that instructor experience but i went from there straight to seal team four as a matter of fact i showed up the day after i graduated so i was an extremely junior ensign um <laughs> and i found out that i got an ensign parking spot at seal team four right up there next to the commanding officer in the xo and then um a senior chief came up to me and, and said, is that your car in the ensign parking spot? And I said, yes. And he said, get it out. We don't do that crap here. So that was my one perk. And I lost it within the first day at SEAL Team 4. <laughs> and uh, I realized it wasn't going to be the same as being a chief. And every time somebody yelled chief in the hallway, I'd spin around and then realize it wasn't for me. So I, I eventually grew into it. And I'm all the tactical information, my ability to shoot, skydiving, all those skills, you know, I had already. And I wasn't the same as any other ensign or junior officer coming into a SEAL team. So I had a lot of advantages on, from the practical standpoint, the operational standpoint. And I was older, so I had some advantages in judgment, and life wisdom. But it was a completely different reality. Yeah. The biggest thing was I was not considered a subject matter expert, you know, by the people around me. Yeah. That's what the chiefs were for, right? That's right. So the chiefs run the Navy. Yes. And, or, you know, in the army, and the Marine Corps, the senior NCOs. So yeah. that was the biggest um, kind of difference after I made that conversion. So you, you spent, uh, you spent 20 years in the Navy and 20 years. Correct. In service. It was about 10 and 10. So, so half, half enlisted, half officer. So at the end, when you, when you finally walked out of the gate, of the final, the final time of the base when you, when you left the Navy and look back, what would you say that were the three or four most important things you learned in terms of skills, in terms sure. of skills, Marty? Well, one of the skills was I'd learned, especially by the end of the 20 years, a certain kind of intellectual humility, which, you know, I talk about it in some of my writings and refer to it quite frequently, but I, I, I knew that the day the day I was walking out uh, through the through the admin office with my retired ID card, if if you're experienced, if you've been in combat, 
if you've been in a couple of bar fights, doesn't matter what you've been, you've been in races, you've been, you're, you're a champion skier. There's always somebody that you've run into that's better than you. There's somebody better, faster, stronger, tougher, meaner, quicker. And that was a reality that I was really aware of having been in an elite unit surrounded by superstars. These guys were incredible athletes, incredible uh, thinkers. They were aggressive. They were attentive. They were, I mean, the stress management wasn't even management. They just ate stress like candy. It was fun. <laughs> they liked taking risks because they liked the challenge of it. Uh, they were problem solvers and you, you can't ever rest on your laurels in that organization because nobody cares. You know, if you get a medal, everybody sees it pinned on your chest within 20 minutes of that ceremony being over, everybody's giving you a bunch of crap, you know, you know, so what that was, that was what the medal showed up today. When'd you do that? Like six months ago? Yeah. What are you going to do for us now? You know, what are you gonna do tomorrow? So that's one of the biggest things I walked out with was a sense of intellectual humility that I didn't know at all being a seal was not going to give me any great advantage. And I knew I was going into financial services and into investments. And I knew that was a whole world that I had to, you know, approach with an open mind and, and be willing to learn and listen and pay my dues for a while. Tell us a little bit about that, that transition from the intense military experience to the business world. So there's a couple things. The first thing is, you know, when you're a, an officer, let's say, you know, you're a lieutenant, if you're the greatest lieutenant in the SEAL teams or the United States Navy for that, for that matter, you're getting paid exactly the same as the worst lieutenant in the United States Navy. <laughs> There's no real merit associated with economics. And, you know, yeah, I step out and I'm in a, in a company where they're going to pay me, you know, $20,000 as a training uh, stipend salary while I'm going through all the training to get all my licensing. The day that licensing ended, it's like, good luck, kid all commissions and fees, no salary. So everything economically from that point forward was going to happen only if I did something. And it, that thing I had to do was sell. And that was a shock. The, the transition from if I'm sick, if I break my leg, the paycheck's still going to hit my account every time in the military. And the fact that if I'm halfway decent, or if I really stink as an officer, I'm still going to get the same pay as everybody else. You know, that kind of comfort zone that went away within four months after I started uh, in the financial services industry. And then the humility really kicked in. And then I started talking to anybody and everybody I knew that knew how to sell anything. I didn't care if it was vacuum cleaners because they don't teach that in college, by the way. Yeah. You know, how to sell. And I had to, I had to sell. And initially I thought I was selling my company. And then I realized in, about six months, I had to sell myself because people hand their money to people they trust. So I had a trustworthy face, but then I had the same problem I'd always had. I was 37 and I looked like I was 27. I had people actually walk out of the office once, you know, the husband and wife came in, took one look at who they had an appointment with and just <laughs> and walked out because, <laughs> you know, they're like, no way. I was like the Doogie Hauser of investment, you know, investment advice. So yeah, yeah that was, that was probably those two things. The, the, um, the fact that I, I wasn't going to make any money just for showing up that I really had to work hard. And the second thing was that I was right back to where I'd been as a really young chief. And as the, as a brand new one day old ensign, I was the new guy, the new face. And I was going to really work hard to get anybody to, to trust me and to believe that I had any credibility. And that all eventually evolved. And I got 
I got better at it, understood it. I started making money. I started collecting clients. And then I loved that whole meritocracy thing by, yeah, you know, that, that's fantastic. You know, they, um, very Darwinian, they, that business, you, you do great. You move up through this, the succession of, of payouts based on your, your sales numbers. And, and then, and you're making tons and tons of money eventually. And then if you kick back and take a vacation and you lose a couple of customers, you're not adding any new customers, you're not selling anything, you go back the other way. It's yeah. a reverse, it's a reverse Darwinian, Darwinism. So, you know, if they move you into a bigger office and a bigger office because of your sales, they'll come in and tell you to get stuff in a box and keep moving you back to the cubicle. I mean, it was, it was, it was an interesting, interesting life and it, it kept me on my toes, but I actually enjoyed it a lot. Well, it, it tells me that you uh, then had integrated an awful lot of skills that you learned in the Navy with what you learned through your direct experience in the business world. Uh, so you had uh, a load of information and you became an author and you wrote, uh, you wrote a book. Uh, you started a book and, and wrote it. It's called Be Nimble, How the Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, kind of to the point of your podcast, I was trying to put down on paper all the little tidbits that I was passing out talking to business leaders. I had business leaders calling me, asking me for mentorship and coaching. And in the beginning, it wasn't very structured on my end. It was kind of like this interview. You know, they would, they would lay out something and I would listen to them and I would say, okay. And I'd give them some of my insights. And I realized that over a couple of years, I had some consistent insights that seemed to have traction with this particular population, this audience. And I was getting feedback that it was being effective when it was being applied. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll do a little bit better job at this. I'm going to codify it and lay it all out on paper. And, and that kind of resulted in me thinking, well, what if I turned it into a course and what would I do with that? Well, I'm a CEO, I'm a chief, chief strategy officer right now. So I've got a day job. So, and I'm doing the same thing at work. I mean, I've got executives, I have a fantastic team of really smart people. So, you know, maybe I'll just go beyond a course. Maybe I'll, I'll go ahead and put it down in a book because I've written eight novels, which are a lot of fun. And we're going to get into those in just a minute, but I'm fascinated but I, by that. But I, I really felt compelled to get, get it down on paper. And, and anybody that's ever tried to do this, the first thing you start to, it's that voice in your head is why would anybody read anything that I wrote? Who of the heck course. am I? Right. I that's, a, past that's called Marty. That's called a saboteur. The saboteur <laughs> is the judge. You know, how, how in the heck is anybody going to listen to this guy from Sydney, Nebraska, talk about strategies and stuff like that. The judge is telling you, you're just not good enough and you've got to get yeah. by that. And I had PTSD from the old people turning around and walking out of my my office. <laughs> you know, I mean, okay. So, so I haven't always been taking seriously at the beginning of these different career moves or different jumps. And I thought, okay, nobody's going to take me seriously at this. So I kind of hedged a little bit. What I did was I created an outline. I pulled together three or four beta readers, which are just people that are your target audience that are, are willing to read either the completed manuscript or chapters as you go and give you feedback. And they were all executives, business owners, or multiple-time business owners. A couple of were Harvard graduates. And, and I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And I'd like your feedback. And I gave them 
essentially what the book proposal was, what I want out of this, uh, what I want the reader to get out of this, the, the narrative, the, the almost feel like you're having a mentoring session when you read it. So they kept me straight. They bounced off um, some of their ideas, but I realized as I was going along, when I got, I got a call and one of them said that he'd printed it out in a three ring binder because he was making so many notes to use in his own company that he wanted to get the whole thing on paper and put the notes in the margins next to where I was talking about things. And I said, wow, this thing's really, this, this thing's really had an impact on this guy. So then I felt like all that kind of self-doubt went away and I, you know, continued and finished that book. I've actually finished the sequel to it. It's in editing right now, but Be Nimble was that first attempt to, you know, codify and put all these thoughts, all these lessons learned from my entire life experience in business and in the, in the SEAL teams as a leader into one spot. I'll bet you've had a chance or been in demand to go out and talk about that. I've done a couple of, of speeches, all virtual. One, one was interesting. It was 250 people in a leadership Academy that I couldn't see. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's weird. Um, I've actually had a couple of, of speeches that were scheduled and then canceled because of, of COVID. They just decided this is recently where they decided not to put everybody in a big auditorium. They were kind of hemming and hawing over that. So I, I'm not going out and doing a lot of speeches at the second because of those kind of constraints, yeah, but I'm probably doing three or four podcasts a week. You know, there, that, that seems to be a big demand. And the book comes out in the United States, January 1st, it's on pre-sale now on Amazon. Uh, and that's at my the one that's, that's the be visionary strategic leadership in the age of optimization. No, that's, that that's, that's the be nimble. So be nimble. Oh, okay. Okay. Being able is available now for pre-sale on Amazon under Marty Strong. That's the best way to find it. And then my website, my author website is martystrongbenimble.com. And if you go there, you, you can just hit the, the book cover. It'll take you straight to the point of sale for the, for the pre-sale. The uh, book comes out in the United Kingdom in early December. It comes out in the United States January 1st. I expect that the second book, Be Visionary, uh, Strategic Leadership in the... Um, in the age of optimization will be released at the end of next summer. Mm -hmm. um, I, I finished that about two months ago and it's in, it's in editing. So there's going to be a little bit of a separation, not a huge separation between the two books. They complement each other. The first one's more about the mechanics of leadership, scaling, talent selection, talent grooming, um, leading in, in small businesses and large businesses, handling the stress of, of leadership. The second book is focused on using vision to form a strategy to, or to inform a strategy as opposed to optimization and micro measurement as a strategy. And yes. again, lots of lessons learned, you know, how to do it, how to, how to pitch strategies, how to pitch visions. And then once you've been given the permission and the resources to, to execute, how do you put a plan together? How do you implement the plan? How do you execute the plan? And then what happens when you get to the other end successfully and that, and the vision is in place. So, um, that's the second book. Wow, you've got you've got a lot going. It sounds to me like it's a lot of substance there for a TED talk. Yeah, that'd be nice. Go for that'd... it, my friend. Go for it. But you also didn't stop there. I mean, you've written Marty's written eight novels. Tell us a little bit about those novels and and what might be the the common theme that they share. Sure. Don't tell us the, don't tell us the bottom line of them. You know, we want no, to sell these books. I won't. So about six years ago, I read. Um, the book, the four hour work week. And the, one of the, one of the elements in the book 
talked about living your bucket list and I re it really resonated with me. So you're supposed to take a spreadsheet, put all your bucket list items on it and then price them out. Like you were going to go do all of them right now. You know, yeah. if they're, and most of the examples were trips. Well, I looked at it and I realized that I've been to 40 plus countries, some of them multiple times. And I, that's not my bucket list to keep going to other countries. So my bucket list was learn how to play the guitar. Well, learn how to speak Spanish well, and to write a novel and publish it and to write a leadership book and publish it. So the other, one of the other tenets in the book had to do with what are you, what are you doing with your time? So you do an inventory of, of your day every day for seven, for seven days. And then you look at everything that you're doing and what are you getting for it? So if you're sitting there mindlessly playing games or you're watching news or you're reading newspapers and stuff, unless you're a newspaper man or unless you're a politician or unless you're an economist, why are you spending so much time on these things? Is it habit, et cetera? So I did that and I realized I had quite a bit of time. I was kind of a news junkie. So I decided I was going to carve out five in the morning to about 6.30 in the morning as my writing time. And my first compulsion was to write a book about the seals, a novel, but I decided I was going to do something that I could kind of have more free reign. So I wrote a, a science fiction book about time travel and warriors being trained to go back in time to fight is, is, is something like a, uh, a sport to go back in time to say fight the Romans or to fight the, uh, the Celtic tribes. Yeah. And they had to be in shape and they had to have uh, all the skills and they, did, they weren't allowed to go back in time until this happened. But what they ended up doing is they ended up having to apply and forge all those same warrior ethos, all the same kind of brotherhood bonds. So it was a way for me to put all those things that I learned in the SEAL teams all those, those great, you know, attributes of most elite units and put that into my characters. And in some <laughs> cases, you know, put the opposite kind of person in the mix too, you know, and, and they're sacrificing for each other and they're training because if I'm going with you, if Charlie, you and I are going to go back and we're going to fight in some Byzantine era with swords and spears and things, you better have your act together and you're looking at me and you, I better have my act together because you're going to rely on each other. So there's, there's a whole lot of that. We stuff again. And it was a lot of fun to write. And I did the research and made it accurate to the, to the time and the equipment and everything else, which was a little bit more his, historical work than I thought I was going to end up doing. And then the book did really well. So I wrote a sequel to it. And then I decided to write my first seal novel and I picked a main character that's not me, which everybody thinks it's on. It's about me, but this is a regular kind of young officer, not an ex-enlisted officer with 10 years as a SEAL, <clears throat> who's going to make all the normal mistakes and have all the normal angst of a young officer in any service. And that was, that was received really well. So I wrote the third time travel novel. Then I wrote the second SEAL novel. Then I wrote the fourth time travel novel. Then I wrote the next two SEAL novels. So they're all kind of interchanged. Um, and I, the last, the last of those eight novels I published in May of this year, and of course, being nimble, I finished and got, got a publishing contract at the end of last year. So it's actually, you know, been ready, printed, and everything. They just wanted to get past the most of COVID, so that when I start touring and things, it wasn't going to inhibit, inhibit their marketing plan. Wow, and, and your the novels and so forth are all available on Amazon as well, and so forth. They are. I, I write the. I write the novels under M.L. Strong, 
And however, if you go to, you know, MartyStrongBeNimble.com at the bottom of, of uh, I believe it's the, the, the primary page, there's a copy, uh, the cover of my Be Nimble book, but right next to it, there's two different covers. One is a cover representing the SEAL series and the other one's uh, representing the, uh, the Time Warrior sagas, which is the other series. So if you click either one of them, it take you straight to, the, to Amazon. Wow. Well, I, Marty, I can tell you with, with all your Navy SEAL experience and your business experience, you've got a wealth of knowledge and, you know, about uh, virtually everything. And you really have probably developed a, uh, a sense of how you might sum up what the definition of leadership might be these days. And how, how would you define leadership now in a day like today, you know? That's a great question. And, and it's a question that I confronted at the very beginning of being nimble. It, there's a lot of different ways to come at that question. So here's how I came at it. I wanted to make a distinction between a leadership and a manager. And in my own experience, leaders step up when things are falling apart. Leaders anticipate things falling apart. So sometimes when they step up, it's in advance. It's an anticipatory skill they're looking out and making sure that you're preparing you know you're building a trench because the bad guys are coming you know yeah. you're putting putting aside food you're, you're saving money whatever because things are things are looking strange managers they focus on operating processes systems and directing people that are talented in very specific specific skill sets but where the management kind of falls apart and the leadership starts is when any of those processes fail fall apart or they're challenged by either an internal or an external dynamic that maybe renders them moot. Yeah. It could be a competitive move. Somebody outside has turned your entire company uh, into something that's um, irrelevant. It could be just that the, the main product's irrelevant. It could be your, your service. And, and then there's so many different things that could happen to do that. But if there's a, a black swan event, something larger scale that nobody anticipated, even the leader, None of the systems and none of the procedures and none of the processes that you have in place, I don't care how, much, how, well, how well written they are, I don't care how well defined they are, are going to get you through the next 20 days because the next 20 days is all unknown. It's chaos. It may be caused by a, an immediate crisis and it's clear to everybody. It may not be. It may be a slow rolling kind of a crisis and it's only clear to the leader, but leaders are the people that step up in that moment, whether they're assigned to do it, they're paid to do it or they just know it's the right thing to do and they they fix and correct the direction of an organization and the people in that organization mm -hmm. now once everything's settled and figured out and the crisis is gone then they can step back and let the managers restructure the procedures restructure the processes you know replace the systems and kind of get everything built again and then start optimizing and humming along on a flat line but that's management. That's not leadership. And those attributes for a leader, a little bit of audacity, but you have to have some, some vision and some foresight, I think. And then you have to have the kind of intestinal fortitude and the risk, the risk um, acceptance um, gene, whatever that, whatever that is in your DNA. Because everybody else, when things go wrong, a lot of people just back off from it because it, it's risk. It's, it's a risk to their status. It's a risk to their future. You know, they're looking around for somebody else to go pull a fire alarm on the wall. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic and you, you're, you know, you're a Naval commander, you're an officer. 
it's uh, it doesn't have to happen in the military construct, but it's 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 amazing. And then you hear story after story after story of people that aren't leaders thrusting themselves into car accidents and all kinds of different scenarios, taking charge, directing people, saving saving a life, you know, making and they just did it. Yeah. And they just it just turned on and they executed, you know. And that, that to me that's leadership. That's the uniqueness of being a leader, a good leader. Well, I think that's just an outstanding definition. Now, kind of at a, at a last uh, uh, thing that we want to talk about, let's take a trip out to the panhandle of uh, Nebraska to Sydney and so forth and just say, and you may have already done this, but let's say that you're making a commencement address at the high school and uh, you've, you, you, you've already, you've talked for 15 minutes or something like that, and you're going to sum it all up in terms of uh, giving these young students that are facing this crazy future we have right now, three or four pieces of advice in terms of pursuing their careers and their lives, not only as uh, people who are earning a living, but as citizens in a constitutional republic. What would those things be? Well, the first thing I would say is you're gonna get a lot farther in life if you think more about other people than yourself. If you contribute to the well-being and the happiness of other people, because by, by doing so, you're going to actually find that you're happier. It, 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 it pay, there is a payback loop. You know, whatever you put into it, you get back. The second thing would be that when you start off in high school, or when you, or you know, and you end up in a, as a graduate of high school, graduate of college, it seems like you have very little time to get it all right, and it's the exact opposite. You've got 40, 50, 60 years in front of you. If it only takes four years to get a degree and fill in the blank, you're only four years away at any given time in the next 60 years from having a degree or getting special training. You could be an engineer, then you could change and become a therapist, then you can change and become an airline pilot, then you can change and be a farmer. All those, th all those options in this country are available to you. And you just have to kind of forget what everybody says the rules are. The rules aren't that you have to have it all figured out on day one. The rules are you can do anything you want whenever you want, as long as you put your mind to it. And people that take care of other people and think of other people as they're kind of going through their lives, get more help in, in doing well in all those different adventures and all those different you know, um, uh, life experiences than you could possibly imagine. Going through alone would be, be tough. You could still do it, but Going through with people that are, are cheering for your success because you help them become successful. I mean, if, if right now, if I pick up the phone and I say, hey, I think I want to do this, I have 20, 30 people that would immediately say, how can I help you? <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's the biggest takeaway from, from my life at this point. And it's, it's sad, but at the same time, it's kind of enlightening if a young person could just embrace that that the pressure goes away to be perfect and, and figure it all out in the first couple of years, figure something out, go for it, get bored with it, move on to the next thing, get good at that, get bored with it, move on to the next thing. There are and no you, rules. And you apply those critical skills that you mentioned and you talked about that you learned over your lifetime. You just rely on them and think you can do it and you just move ahead. And that, that intellectual humility, I was an engineer. It's not going to help me be a farmer, learn yep. how to be a farmer, work on a farm and then eventually make, get your own farm and you'll end up being a good farmer. And when you're bored with that and you're going to do something else, remember to be, be humble, step in there and apprentice your way up. That's just the way it works, but it's all there for you. It's all available. 
And you're saying something that uh, I remember that the superintendent of the Naval Academy when I was there used to say all the time at the pep rallies. He, he'd shake his fist and he'd say, you can do anything you set your mind to do and don't you forget it. And that's, I mean, to me, Marty, that's basically what you've been saying. Yes. And, and it's not a trite phrase no. or a bumper sticker. It's now you can't do that everywhere in the world, maybe, but in the United States, you can sure do it. You absolutely here. can. Well, Marty, now let's review for a second how someone can uh, get in touch with you and get a hold of your books. You can do them on Amazon and your your own website. What is the website again? MartyStrongBeNimble.com. MartyStrongBeNimble.com. And I would say uh, your books are, are, are a treasure for people who've got an act, who've got active mind minds and uh, feel like they want to do anything they set their mind to do. So I'd recommend you check them out. <laughs> so Marty, he thanks so much for being our guest uh, today on It's All About Skills. It was my pleasure, Charlie. Thanks for having me. And as for me, I'm an internationally certified coach, a career coach, and I specialize in career management, skill development, career crises in positive intelligence. And you can get in touch with me through my websites, charliejetcoaching.com or podcastpq.com. So I want to thank you all for listening today, and we'll see you the next time as we discuss the critical skills on It's All About Skills. Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills.